Well, my subject, as not unsurprisingly, is uh, Franciscan spirituality. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I wish to begin by uh, talking about a young man named John. A very fortunate young man because um, he had everything going for him in life. He had uh, a wealthy family. He came from a wealthy family. He, he had away with people. He had uh, a lovely singing voice. He had a happy temperament. He had an ambition in life. He wanted to be a soldier. In fact, everything was going well for him. And until one day when he was returning to his hometown, his home city, he was riding home because the, those were the days of four-legged transport rather than four-wheel transport. He was riding home and he saw in the road before him, quite close to the walls of his town, he saw a man begging. And being a generous young man, particularly with his father's money, he reached into his wallet to hand the man a coin. And he was just about to do so when he suddenly drew back in horror because he recognized that this wasn't an ordinary beggar, this, this man was a leper. And he had a deep, deep fear within him of disease of any kind, and particularly of leprosy, which in those days was believed to be highly contagious, a disease of the devil, an evil disease. And so he found himself recoiling from the sight of this man and was about to ride by, to pass the man by, and was suddenly brought up short by the man's words from the road, who cried out to him, for the love of God, for the love of God. And those words went to the young man's heart. And it was as though in an, in in an instant, he remembered how, for his love's sake, God had come from his high throne in heaven and had come to share our human life in Jesus and to be with us in our suffering, in our brokenness, and even in our death. And so instead of pushing by, the young man got down off his horse and he knelt in front of the leper on the road and taking his hands, he kissed them and then embraced him and called him Brother Leper and raised the man to his feet and the two went on their way together. And the young man was never ever the same again I said his name was John, and that was his baptismal name, or Giovanni, because he was an Italian. And his hometown was Assisi. And he was known as Francis because his father had married a French wife, and that was his nickname. 
And I, I start with that story of Francis because Franciscan spirituality is perhaps more than any other tradition of spirituality tied up with the person of Francis. And to have a sense of what Franciscan spirituality is or the tradition of Franciscan spirituality, it's necessary to have some way engaged with the person of Francis. But I also share this story with you because it gives us one very important glimpse into the heart of Franciscan spirituality. And that is that it is to do with Jesus. It's a profoundly Christocentric mysticism. What converted Francis on the road outside Assisi, what turned his heart, wasn't just the suffering of a leper, he was actually repelled by leprosy. It was the sudden recognition that God in Jesus comes to share our humanness and our suffering and our brokenness and, in our, and our weakness. And forever after from that point, Francis was absorbed with the person of Jesus, absolutely central to him. His earliest biographer, Thomas of Celano, would say of him, he had Jesus in his heart, Jesus on his lips, Jesus in his eyes, Jesus in his hands and his feet, Jesus in every member. He would tell how Francis used to go around just murmuring the word Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Saviour, Jesus. He dwelt on the person of Jesus. Two particular aspects or two particular moments of the life of Jesus um, were particularly caught Francis's attention. Uh, one was the birth of Jesus, the lowly birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. He was overwhelmed by the humility of Jesus's birth. It moved him, it touched his heart. He was overawed by it. Um, that God the great God of heaven should come to dwell among us, weak and powerless as a tiny baby. This so, was so much part of his own devotion that he, towards the end of his life, when he was staying at the hermitage of Greccio, between Assisi and Rome, one Christmas, he borrowed a stable from the local farmer and he asked for animals and for the local people to come and their mass was celebrated in the stable. It's beautifully told that Greccio became, as it were, another Bethlehem. And so we have the tradition of the Christmas crib. Making Christ visible, Christ real, the reality of, Christ, of God's humility in Jesus was one key fact 
key stone in Francis's spirituality, and therefore in Franciscan spirituality. And the second, of course, was, was the cross. Jesus' suffering and death, his willingness to suffer and to die, touched him. And so, going along the road, when he saw two sticks lying across each other, he would stand and look at them and be reminded of the cross. And he would first weep at the suffering of Jesus and of God's great, great condescension towards us. God's brokenness, God's vulnerability in Jesus. And then it was said he would take up the sticks and he would use them as a violin, as it were, a mock violin. He would dance for joy at the love which had led Christ to the cross. Francis's own particular signature was the, 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 the Tau cross, the cross in the shape of a T, uh, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet and which um, is referred to in um, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, um, that a, the sign of the Tau would be placed on the foreheads of those who wept for the sins of Jerusalem. And Pope Innocent III at the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 uh, made it an official sign of for renewal in the church. But for Francis, it was a very particular personal sign of his attachment to his love of Christ on the cross. <coughs> this focusing on the person of Christ was actually part of a rebalancing of spirituality in the life of the church. For, for centuries, the emphasis had been on Jesus' divinity. Perhaps, in, perhaps as a balance against the Arian controversy of the church, in the early days of the church, which had denied <laughs> Jesus' whole divinity. The church had emphasised the divinity of Christ and the pictures, the, the frescoes of Christ had been of Chris, Christ's Pantocrator, Christ over all. But around the time of Francis, perhaps well, it can be seen in Bernard of Clairvaux in the century prior to that, there became to be a, a, a gradual attention and growing attention to the, the sacred humanity of Jesus. And really that came to, to fruition. It came to flowering in, 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 in the life of Francis and in Francis's spirituality. Francis, this wasn't a sort of a, um, a theological development in, in Francis's mind. He was no, he was no theologian, <coughs> um, but he knew it in his guts. He knew it in his guts. He was drawn to the person of Jesus. So it's a profoundly evangelical spirituality, 
Franciscan spirituality. Focused on the person of Jesus, on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's the first thing I want us to introduce with. But a little bit about, about the sources of the life of Francis. A little bit about how we know anything about Francis at all. He, he, he didn't write very much. He didn't write any great summa theologica. He didn't write any great tome. He didn't write great commentaries on the scriptures like some of the church fathers had done. He, his writing consists of um, a number of prayers. Not, I might say, the prayer which we all know today as the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That was... Uh, written some 600 years after the life of Francis. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Hmm. Uh, but he did write other prayers. Most high and glorious God, come and enlighten the darkness of our hearts. Give us a true faith, a sure hope, and a perfect love. Give us a sense of the divine and the knowledge of yourself, that in all things we may fulfill your most holy will. He also wrote a rule for his order, or two rules. The first one's been lost. A later one is the rule which the order of Friars Minor, the conventuals, the Capuchins follow. He wrote admonitions. He wrote letters. He wrote a testament, a final testament and will. And what you notice about his writing is that it is profoundly scriptural. Profoundly scriptural. He's constantly quoting from the scriptures. You know, it reminds us that, um, you know, although Francis was not a lettered man, he wasn't a, he wasn't a theologian, he called himself unlettered, yet he really knew his scriptures. He was steeped in the scriptures. And, you know, I think that's, uh, it's something which we've almost totally lost in our Christian culture today. Almost totally lost. We know a bit about the scriptures, but we don't really know the scriptures themselves. We don't inhabit the scriptures in a way which even people of two or three generations ago did. Francis inhabited the world of the scriptures, the images of the scriptures, the nuances of the scriptures, the echoes of the scriptures. They're constantly in what writings uh, we do have remaining of his. And he clearly was a person who had a, this tremendous reverence from the, of the word of God in the scriptures, not as a fundamentalist, it wasn't, people weren't either fundamentalists or liberal in those days. It was just a knowing the scriptures from the inside. And he clearly had that. And was open to the spirit at work in them. So, both Christocentric 
and profoundly scriptural. Very much the evangelical tradition. What else we know of Francis um, comes from people who wrote about him. Thomas of Celano, his first biographer, knew Francis. He would have met him. He would have been one of his followers. He wrote two accounts of Francis's life, or wrote one and then was asked to give more. Um, then a second generation of stories about Francis, really reevaluating him in the light of his popularity. And then in the, in the 14th century, elaborations on those, the little flowers of St. Francis, immensely wonderful popular um, legends about Francis. And then, as well as that, of course, there are the more recent books about Francis. And it's extraordinary that you know, a new major book seems to come out about once every two or three years on Francis. It's been written about since the end of the 19th century. Um, there's been a huge um, development of Franciscan scholarship. I've put some of these down on the book list, which you have, and you might want to ask <coughs> about those or, or question about those. Um, I'd mention particularly the Franciscan Handbook, which is, which is, which is uh, touched on there, because he, that, that actually sort of is, a, is a key into some of the other um, uh, accounts of Francis's life. But the one writing which, of Francis, which I haven't mentioned so far, is the one really I want to look at in the major part of this, the rest of this first part, which is the great song which Francis composed called The Canticle of the Creatures. And you have that in front of you. Just say a little bit about it. Um, it's an extraordinary poem. Extraordinary in, some, in, in a number of ways. Um, it was the first great poem in the Italian vernacular. It's actually, it's a literary landmark um, in the Italian language. Francis was not well acquainted with Latin, or he didn't know it well enough to write in Latin. And he wanted to write in a way which could be understood by those who didn't know Latin. He also, he loved the language. He was a poet himself. He saw himself, Francis, as, as, as a troubadour, or in the troubadour tradition. The troubadours who went singing the songs of chivalry around Europe. A romantic songster. And Francis would see himself as singing, the, knew himself as one who sang the praises of the Lord. He wanted to tell not of the romantic love of a knight for his lady, but of the passionate love for God and of God's passionate love for us. It seems that he often sang 
The other remarkable thing about the, the canticle is that it was composed in the last year of his life. And although it talks about the world, the creatures, the environment, <coughs> earth, sea and sky, he actually couldn't see any of it because he was blind by then. He wrote it for his brothers, for his brothers to sing. It was a way of sharing the gospel. He said, I wish to compose a new hymn about the Lord's creatures of which we make daily use, without which we cannot live, <coughs> and with which the human race greatly offends its creator. Because it doesn't, didn't appreciate it. So he sang this, he composed this song and taught his brothers to sing it in praise of God for all his creation. Just let's have a, have a look at it. Most high, all-powerful, good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory and the honour and all blessing. In Francis, there's a, there's a, a, there are two poles in his spirituality. One, a great sense of the holiness of God, of the holiness of God, of the utter otherness of God. A great sense of the transcendence of God, the majesty of God. God as awesome. God as unapproachable. And yet at the same time, the other pole is <coughs> of God's closeness to us in Jesus. God as alluring. God as desirable. God as delightful. One of the prayers he wrote is known as the Absorbiat. Your loving Lord, fiery and sweet as honey, so absorb our hearts as to withdraw them from all that is under heaven. May we be ready to die for love of your love as you have died for love of our love. And those first two lines of the, of the canticle are giving praise both to, the, both to the, the majesty of God and the awesomeness of God, but also of God's intimacy with us, God's closeness to us in Jesus, that God longs for us and longs for us to long for God. That seems to be absolutely <coughs> the essence of Francis, holding those two poles, being, living between those two poles both the awesomeness of God, but also of God's intimacy with us, God's closeness to us. And then, praised be you, my Lord, with all your creatures. Praised be, my, praised be you, my Lord, with all your creatures. What does this really mean? Just think about it. 
It means that creation reveals something of God to us. Creation is the icon of God. When we consider creation and consider the world around us, we can see something of God's love and of God's goodness and of God's generosity. The creation reveals God's fruitfulness, God's fecundity, God's generosity, God's beauty. It's saying that, that everything in some way points to God or can point to God. The word which we, we, we sometimes use for this is, is panentheism. Now, there's something profoundly different from, that's something profoundly different from pantheism. Pantheism is that God is everything. Everything is, is divine. There's actually no separation between God and the world. There's no, no division at all. There's no transcendence of God. Everything is God. But that isn't what Francis was saying in this canticle. It's not actually what Christian tradition says. It's that God, God is in all things. And all things reveal to us something of the glory of God. Panentheism. Creation, the icon of God. But it also speaks to us and tells us that creation gives praise to God. That, as it were, there's a song being sung, a song of praise being sung by creation throughout eternity. That all things give praise to God by being what they are. So the sun gives praise to God by shining, by being warm. Water gives praise to God by being itself. Animals give praise to God in their own way, as we are called to give praise to God. There's a song of creation being sung from all eternity. All things give praise to God. And when we give praise, we're just joining in. We're joining in with something that's going on from all eternity to all eternity. This, of course, isn't just, I mean, it's not, this isn't unique to Francis. He's drawing on, on traditions of the church. He's drawing on the scriptures. He's drawing on the Psalms. But it comes to a particular expression, a particular focus in the Canticle of the Creatures. And then the third thing which this central passage of, of the Canticle of the Creatures shows us is in God, 
we're brought into a new relationship or a true relationship with each other. The sun becomes brother sun. The moon becomes sister moon. It's brother wind. Brother fire. Sister water. Or putting it another way, because we know Jesus as our brother, we're brought into a brotherly, sisterly relationship with all things. Because Jesus has revealed to us the true relationship, the true relationship with the Father, and greets us as brothers and sisters, Therefore, we become brothers and sisters to each other and to all things. And this, of course, is particularly a characteristic of, of, of Francis of Assisi. If I ever go to a school and I say to children, what do you know about Francis of Assisi? They'll say, he loved animals. Um, and of course, there's a great sort of certain sentimentality around all that. Um, I, I rather dislike doing pet services. <laughs> I, I get asked to take pet services, but I don't really like doing them. Because there is something a bit... I'm not quite sure about it, really. It's more to do with us than the pets, I think. Um, but, I mean, what was absolutely clear about Francis was that he had a reverence for the world around him, for those who were around him. He saw himself in relationship to those who were around him, to all that was around him. So he was a brother to his brothers in community, those who lived with him, but he was also brother to the thief. And he was brother not just to the swallows and the skylarks, but he was brother to the crows as well, and to the wolf. It's interesting how many um, holy people, how many people in, in all religious traditions have a particular way with animals. Um, Seraphim Masarov, one, um, in the, in the 19th century. <clears throat> and clearly it's not something, it's not just an isolated phenomenon, you know, it's just, just, not just those two. Um, those of you who know, I'm just looking for it, a lovely quote from in Olivier, Olivier Clement's um, book. The humble man confronts murderous wild beasts. From the moment they see him, their savagery is tamed. They approach him as if they were, if he were their owner, nodding their heads and licking his hands and feet. They actually scent coming from him the fragrance that Adam breathed forth before the fall when they came to him in paradise and he gave them their names. That's from Isaac of Nineveh, his ascetic treatises. But there's a way of, of, of being with each other which actually brings us into a true relationship with each other. 
And Francis, in a very particular way, had that. He saw that all things relate together. They belong together. So Francis' relationship wasn't a sort of a sentimental thing. It wasn't because he just thought animals were nice and furry and beautiful. It was because everything had a right to be there. And he was brother and sister to those. And it wasn't, of course, just... Um, it wasn't just, of course, the, the, the animals. It was, it was inanimate creation as well. So it's brother sun and sister moon and brother fire and sister water. We had a brother in, um, in my early days when I joined the community who would take this um, to an extreme himself. And so at table, he would pass, say, pass brother potato, please. <laughs> and you would have debates with him about whether it was brother or sister potato um, and so on. Um, it, it, it's, it's a way of being in relation to creation which knows it from the inside, you know? There is all the difference in the world, I think, between that and what we have um, nowadays, I think, which would call environmental tourism voyeurism, which sees the world as a tourist, which wants to click pictures, which wants to see as many different sites as possible. Um, that's a million miles away from Francis. It's learning to look at the world around you and to see it not just the beautiful bits, but the ugly bits in a new kind of way, and therefore come into relationship with it. Um, I think that some of our poets know that. I wouldn't quote, I wouldn't say Wordsworth um, or Keats, who came from a profoundly romantic perspective on nature. But I would mention um, John Clare, the great poet of the countryside, who, who when you read John Clare's poetry, he, he's not seeing it as a spectator. He's speaking from his guts about it, about the countryside and about the natural environment. Um, a poet today would be Wendell Berry, the great American um, environmentalist, ecologist, agriculturalist, who speaks of the country from the inside, of the natural world from the inside, and uh, perhaps Thomas Traherne as well. Um, now, this, this way of being with the world, not for our own sake, not because it it's sort of it, it, it's going to be good for us, or we're going to benefit from it. Not to sort of collect experiences of the na of nature and the environment. Nor even because out of sentimental attachment to the world, but because because the world is a gift of God. Because the world is a precious, precious gift. 
and that we, like everything else, belong to God and are part of God's family. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters. That's the particular thing, the particular gift of Francis. And what a huge, hugely important message that is for today in our, in our world situation, in our, the way we treat the environment. Because it's saying it's not just enough to, you know, to sort of conserve energy and to sort of use different kinds of light bulbs and everything. There's something, you know, it, it's, it's a million miles away from that. It's something about paying attention to the world because God is revealed in and through it. Because God desires us and we desire God and that we're made for God and to give praise to God. That's something immensely important and is a particular gift of Francis um, for us. Inhabiting the world, the environment, not as tourists, not as exploiters, but as brothers and sisters. Let's just pause there for a little bit. I want to say a little bit more before we finish, um, but just let's, just let's be still there for a moment, just to sort of reflect on that. Let me just read a poem of Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought or grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. I think St Francis was there in that too. Um, there are just three more stanzas, the last, the last ones. Uh, Praise be you, my Lord, through those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace, for by you, Most High, shall they be crowned. Um, this verse was added on a little bit uh, after the first, the first part of the, of the song. And it was written for a particular situation. Francis by this time very sick, uh, had, had heard that there was a, a row had broken out between the bishop and the mayor of Assisi. And there quite often were rows between the bishop and the mayor of Assisi. Um, the civil and the religious authority <coughs> vying for power and control. And so Francis composed this verse and told the brothers to go and sing it to the bishop and the mayor, <laughs> which they did. And uh, they, they, and believe it or not, 
the bishop and the mayor made up. They were brought to shame by the song and uh, they made peace. Perhaps also they made peace because it was a particular characteristic of Francis to preach peace. Um, I don't want to spend, I'm not going to quote lots of other things, but there's a, um, this quotation from a contemporary source from Francis, um, uh, contemporary to Francis, who heard Francis preach in Bologna. The theme of his sermon said, Thomas of Spalato, the theme of his sermon was angels, men and demons. In reality, throughout his discourse, he spoke of the duty of putting an end to hatreds and of encouraging a new treaty of peace. He was wearing a ragged habit. His whole person seemed insignificant. He did not have an attractive face, but God conferred so much power on his words that they brought back peace in many a seniorial family torn apart until then by old, cruel and furious hatreds, even to the point of assassination. Um, when he sent his brothers out, he told them to give, to greet people with the greeting of peace. Pace bene. And if you see a Franciscan on the road in Italy, that's what you say to him. Pace bene. And he'll say, Pace bene back. Um, he, he made a great emphasis on um, forgiveness and reconciliation amongst the brothers in the order. The need constantly to work for forgiveness and for peace with your brothers. Um, one, I said that to one group once and someone said, but surely the brothers shouldn't have anything to forgive each other for. <laughs> Prior to the writing of this canticle, Francis had spent two years in Egypt around 1220, 1219, 1220. And what he was doing in Egypt, he was going to the Crusades. He joined the Christian Crusading Army, which was then on the, um, the Delta, the Nile Delta, at Damietta. He'd had the great ambition, great romantic idea as a young man that he would be a knight and would serve in the Crusades. And now, 18 or so years later, he finds himself with the Crusading Army, um, but for a very different purpose. He goes to Damietta. He's appalled by the state of the army, by the attitude of the Christians, who were waging war against the um, Muslim um, Egyptians in order to capture, to recapture the holy places. He's so appalled by the Christian army that he tells them that no good will come of their crusade. And he then sets out to cross over the enemy lines, which he does with one other brother. And he's on the way, he's arrested and he's brought to the court of the Sultan which is exactly what he wanted. And there, before the Sultan, whom, after, well, after a while, he, at first he's treated roughly, um, but he continues to 
return um, the rough treatment um, with courtesy, and he's taken to the Sultan, and he asks permission to speak to the Sultan and to tell the Sultan about Jesus Christ, which he does. And so the accounts tell us he was two days in the Sultan's company, talking, discussing, sharing about Jesus Christ, listening, and showing reverence to the Sultan. And at the end of that, the Sultan was not converted, um, but he gave him free passage to the holy places and saw him on his way. But the particular thing about that journey of Francis was that he crossed over the enemy lines to address reverently the enemy, to be unashamedly to talk about Christ, and yet to do so in a way which could be heard and could be received, so that he himself was respected as a holy person. A sign of Francis's approach to making peace, to cross over, to dare to cross over to the enemy territory, to dare to say what is deepest within his heart, but to do it in a way which it can be heard. <coughs> At the heart of it all lies Francis's understanding of the Sultan as his brother. One brother speaking to another brother about Christ. Again, I, I wonder, I wonder what significance that might have for us today. <laughs> I, I, I believe deeply that um, in our relationships with Islam, we need both to speak from our tradition, to know who we're speaking about, to be unashamedly Christ-centered, and yet at the same time to speak words of peace and of reconciliation and of fraternity. It is the only way. This isn't to say that all religions are the same and that somehow it will all sort of come out right in the end. It's to say that this is the only way to make peace. And that I believe there's a very real deep, deep need in our world today for, a, for an understanding, an understanding between people of different faiths, between Christians and Jews, between Christians and Muslims, and of others which does not in any way sacrifice our integrity and of who we are, but is prepared to speak words of peace and to treat each other and to know each other deep down as our brothers and sisters, because that is how God has made us.